This is Mental Maps, a podcast about navigating the mind. My name is Dr. Josh Waddell. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner, mental health counselor, and host of this show. The content of this show is focused on creating a better understanding about the mind and how you can achieve optimal well-being. Welcome back to Mental Maps. As always, I hope this finds you well, no matter what season that you're in. Um, I'm so excited uh, to get back with the podcast. I know it's been a few weeks since we had something out and really been working on a series that I'm excited to bring you. I think that this is going to be something that's going to help you understand mental illness better. And so whether if you're a clinician and you're in the field and you're in the trenches or you're someone who may be just struggling with mental illness or you have someone in your family, I think this will just give you a better understanding of what mental illness is and uh, maybe how we have some of what we're thinking wrong and ways to change that. So we'll just go ahead and jump in to this. That way we can get it going. So have you ever wondered why brains get sick? Like why does this organ that keeps the body working all day long, does all these amazing things, yet also can contemplate the meaning of life, get sick? And then the question from that comes, how does it get sick? You know, we have a lot of labels, especially here in Western culture, of how we identify illness, what that looks like. But how does a brain become ill? And then when it is sick, why do some people really struggle to get well? So when I was in my training, both as a therapist and as a prescriber, you know, you're taught all these techniques and you're taught all these different ways to help people. And, and for many people, they do become well again. But there are some people who they just, they don't or they struggle and maybe the medicines don't respond well or the therapies don't respond well. And so then the question is like, why, why do these people not become well and other people do? And so one of the reasons I believe that this is occurring is that maybe their form of the illness is different than the other person's form of the illness. And we're going to jump into that today and to identify maybe what that looks like. So when you're thinking to yourself like, well, are you sure some people don't get well from mental health issues and those types of things? There's been some research that's shown us the limitations and the challenges within how we treat mental illness today. There's a, a phenomenal study done in 2006 in relation with the National Institute of Mental Health that looked at how well antidepressants work for major depressive disorder. And what they found was that after a within their study of their participants, only one-third of people were in remission with an adequate trial of antidepressant treatment. Meaning that two-thirds of people who were sick, who had the same criteria of depression that the other people had, didn't become well again or didn't become healthy again. Now, for that one-third, that's incredible. That's so awesome that they were able to take a medicine and they were able to become well again. But for the other two-thirds, what do you do now? You know, in the therapy standpoint, you increase therapy or you may begin to go in in different angles in the world of medicine. You're trying other medicines or maybe you're adding numerous medicines on at one time and now you have people on two, three, four medicines. And so what you're seeing in this is that we really don't know why. We don't know why that this two-thirds of people don't become well and the one-thirds do. And I see this a lot in my clinical experience, you know, throughout my time in mental health, just people who do all the right things. They try to have a good routine, they take their medicine, they go to therapy, and it, it, it just doesn't work. And so my goal here is to unpack that a little bit more. So first, let's get some background. So where does mental illness come from? 
So when we think of the concept of mental health in, in itself, this, this field is quite young in the world of healthcare. Um, you know, if you go back 200 years ago, and even today in certain cultures, you, you, mental illness is seen as demonic or maybe it was seen as witches or there's just all these different reasons. You had hysteria in the early 1900s where they would just put people away or maybe they were kind of shunned in society. If you go to other countries, they have a lot of different versions of what it is, evil spirits, those types of things. And so we, we've never seen a field in healthcare, primarily within the body, that is so broad. So, for example, when your heart gets sick, everybody knows why the heart gets sick. And then you take your medicine or you do these diet changes or whatever that looks like, and then you're better. Um, if you have you know, some type of injury, you broke your arm, your arm's broke. There's nothing that kind of tells you that your arm's not broke, and so then you get it treated and you're better. But mental illness is not that way. So really what sent mental illness, you had Freud and, and Carl Jung and those guys who began to understand the human psyche and attempted to understand what is inside the brain. Um, why, why do you have these experiences? But within that also, in the 50s, began this understanding of neurochemistry. In 1953, we had the identification of what serotonin was. And, and that, by Dr. Twarg, I think I said that correctly, T-W-A-R-O-G, so if I said your name wrong, I'm so sorry, or to her family. But you found that serotonin was important in the body. We found that it was all over the body. And so within that became what was called the catecholamine hypothesis. And not to bore you with biology and those things, but I do think this is really important. And this was believed that if you had a decrease in these neurochemicals, whether it be serotonin or dopamine or norepinephrine, that's what caused these illnesses. And so then if you improved that, you gave them more of that, then you'd be better. And really, that was the whole basis of a lot of these antidepressant treatments early on, as well for anxiety and those things, was that if we increase neurotransmitter production, you're better. Well, what we begin to understand is that's not true, that you could give someone serotonin and they could continue to still be depressed or anxious, that maybe it had more to do with, quote unquote, the modulation of those receptors. And once again, not going to get too depth in that. But there is some truth. We know that some levels of neurotransmitters can have an impact on certain mental illnesses, but ultimately that hypothesis was disproven. And so we kind of begin to shift. However, these antidepressant treatments that we have and then the, all the medicines that kind of go around that we're really kind of based in that, that let's modulate these neurotransmitters. So as serotonin is identified, we begin to understand then from there that serotonin has all these different functions. We know that there's 15 serotonin receptors in and outside the brain. So in the same ones are in both. So despite us believing that serotonin was so profound in depression and anxiety, which there is a little bit of truth to that, it's also all over the body. And we'll kind of go back to why that's important later. We had that new study that was done in 2021 uh, that was published in 2022 that it really challenged the concept of how much serotonin is related to depression. It was kind of saying that there was not any evidence of that. And there's some truth to that. I really do believe that. We're not going to unpack that study in this lecture or in this podcast, but there was some truth to that. And so I think it's kind of understanding why, why did the brains get sick? So as in the 50s, so remember when 1953, we have the identification of serotonin. Prior to this, we have the identification of what mental illness was. So in the world of mental health, you have what's called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. It's kind of the guide for mental health, not only in Western culture, but in Europe and other areas of the world. But primarily in Western civilization, we use the DSM to really create labels. And these labels 
attempt to explain human behavior and pathology, while also, to be very honest with you, help us label the illness so insurance will pay for treatment. And that's really what you see happen. Throughout time, it's evolved. And what we've seen is numerous different editions were on the fifth version that's been revised and there's been a couple other like revisions within each one when it was started there was 106 mental illnesses identified in the dsm-1 today there's 156 so despite us evolving over time since 1952 since us understanding more about the brain since 1952 we've seen also the expansion of what mental illness looks like and adding another 50 illnesses since that time however the downfall with the DSM, despite it being so helpful to explain human behavior, is that it only explains the symptoms, not the cause. So if you were to look up major depression or generalized anxiety or even, even schizophrenia, no matter what you're looking up, it's going to explain to you what the symptoms are and how to label it. Yet it doesn't tell you why it's occurring. It doesn't tell you why you're depressed or why you're anxious or what's wrong in the body or the brain. Whereas when you look at other illnesses and other parts of healthcare, it tells you why. Like if you have a um, mitral valve prolapse in your heart, that's telling you what's wrong with your heart. You know, now high blood pressure is telling you what's wrong with your heart. Your blood pressure is too high. You're not pumping, you're pumping blood harder out of your, in your heart. So you see that already, not only in other countries was it different, not only have we had this long history of it kind of being different, but even today in the labels and the way that we're explaining mental illness, it's not the same. We're not really discussing the cause. And I think that is where we in healthcare and we in, in our society and other societies as well must find a way to explain why the brain gets sick. And so what I want to do is propose how I see mental illness, how I am beginning to identify what people are experiencing. And I really challenge you to maybe look at it and see what that looks like in your own life, whether you're a clinician or whether you're a family member, whatever that looks like. So I believe that there are five types of mental illness. Rather than there just being depression, there's five types of depression. Rather than being anxiety, there's five types of anxiety. And each category is based on the cause of the illness. So we're still using this DSM, the, what I referenced earlier, criteria to, for the symptoms to explain the disorder. But we're going a step further in identifying what has caused this illness. With the goal that we identify the cause, explain it, and then fully treat it rather than just treating the symptoms of it. And we're seeing this be a huge push in healthcare already today, but I do believe this can really expand on that. Now, something that's really important before we jump into these five categories, as you're going to hear these, you're going to think, well, somebody has all this. And, and that is true. This can be multi, multifactorial, and we'll discuss like why that's important and how you would treat that. We also know that some of these things we've identified, we know that it exists. However, we only see it many times as these are just compounding factors of the illness, or maybe these are correlating with the illness. And we've seen, like you know, especially like psychosocial stressors, the ACE studies of the adverse child experiences, all these different things that appear to be related to illnesses or put you at risk for the illness. But we're going to even bridge up on that and say this is the cause of the illness. And we'll begin to unpack that a little bit more. So 
we're going to overview each one. And then in the next coming podcast over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack each one of these in depth. So if you kind of leave each category being like, I really want to know more about this, hang tight because we're, we're definitely going to get there. So the first category of, of mental illness is biological. These are biological causes for the brain to be ill. Now you may say, well, isn't that for all of them? And to a point it is, but to a point it's not. These are things that are occurring physiologically that's made you ill. And so this can be like brain changes. These are things that occur when there's some type of physical health illness due to that. We know that your thyroid, your heart, certain viruses, inflammation, injuries, all can change the physiological concept of the brain and then lead to depression, anxiety, psychosis, mood lability, all of these different things. We've seen biologically where there are other parts of the body that are also implicated in the brain that's not even an organ. So we know that, for example, the gut flora, and we're really going to dive into this in, in one of the next podcasts, that the, the good bacteria in your gut has a major impact on your overall mood. As we said earlier, you have 15 serotonin sets of ser- different sets of serotonin receptors. Those are inside the brain and outside of the brain, and a large amount of them are in your gut. And so if your gut's not right, your brain's not right. And so the gut bacteria is so important. We see inflammations really disrupt the gut flora, causing these biological changes, which lead to biological changes in your brain. We see certain medicines that can make this gut flora worse or cause inflammation in your gut. So for example, a medication such as ibuprofen can inflame the gut, destroy the gut bacteria, and now you see people who become a little bit more depressed or maybe feel anxious. Um, a, a great case studies, and you see this for, for many people who's been in the, the field for a while, is someone who maybe was given some type of antibiotic for a long time, like maybe they were getting their acne treated or something like that. What you see is that back, that antibiotic destroys the good bacteria in your gut, and then they show up in your office, and they're like, I'm all of a sudden really, really depressed, and I don't know why. And you get their gut flora right and they get better. We know that obesity, those physiological changes of obesity, has a big impact on the brain and can cause mental illness. So type 1, biological, meaning that there's something going on in the body that is leading to your brain becoming ill. I also group in organic brain changes that we just don't understand. We'll discuss this way more in the next one, but just know that there are some people who just have these organic brain changes that they they just wake up and there is this illness. Now it's very rare for that truly, truly to happen, and you have to rule out all the physical, logical concepts of it too. But that can occur. But we'll discuss that in type one. So type one, biological. Type two is genetics. We've seen this huge push in the world of genes over the past twenty years. You had the Genome Project, which has been incredible for us to understand a lot of illnesses what they've understood with down syndrome what they've beginning to understand with alzheimer's what they understand with other um, maybe possible cancers and things like that but we haven't really found a ton of genes that are very very helpful in understanding mental illness for example uh, we know in schizophrenia there's about 106 genes that could be implicated in the illness that doesn't mean if you have one of those genes you're going to be psychotic and doesn't mean if you don't have any of them you won't be psychotic we just know that there is a chance that that could be part of it but we do know there are genes related to mental illness and for some people this is where that illness occurs for example we know that bipolar disorder as well as depression can have a family history of it 
there's a huge push in the 70s and the 80s to begin to understand maybe nature versus nurture and what does this look like. But we do know for some people, there are these genetic codings that just make you very susceptible to the illness for it to turn on. Now, there can be other reasons why that would occur, but for some people, it is a genetic-based depression. Is it a genetic-based anxiety? And so when those genes turn on, now you have that that, that worry. We, we believe addiction also is part of this. There are families that just seem to be a little bit more prone to having that, that their brain has these different changes in it that makes them susceptible to that compared to others. So biological is type 1. Type 2 is genetic. Genetic changes occurring in the body that lead to your brain becoming sick. The third one is what I call the psychosocial illnesses. So it's the psychosocial type of depression, of anxiety, of these things. And these are a profound amount of different concepts that really make up why people get sick. Now, not that this is a risk factor to get sick, but this is why this person is having depression or anxiety. So for example, psychosocial life stress, we know that any kind of major changes, being bullied at work, it work stress, burnout, home issues, conflict, finances, all of the things that are occurring in just stress can lead to the emergence of not only sadness or worry, but turn into these pathological illnesses that we identify through the DSM. And it doesn't mean that they're, you know, all of a sudden they're, they have some genetic predisposition or it doesn't mean that their body's messed up and something's wrong. It just means that the stress is beginning to take an impact on their overall health. Now, you could say that for some people, if you were to look at that, the chronic cortisol levels and those things, that has an impact on your brain. And that is true, but this is the cause. The cortisol level elevation, the serotonin issues, the norepinephrine issues in the brain aren't related to an unknown factor. Rather, they're related to these life stressors. We also know that resources, such as the ability to access food, the ability to access water, stable housing, money, we know marginalizations within societies, we know family of origin, isolation and avoidance, all of those are factor or could be causes, not just factors, causes of an illness. So you see people who are very, very isolated. They have very minimal social connection, not because they're depressed, but they do this and then they become depressed. They're just very isolated within themselves. Maybe they're playing video games all day long rather than going outside. Whether maybe they are um, in virtual schooling as a kid and so they don't really have any interaction. We've seen this a ton uh, during the COVID lockdowns with kids who began to just get depressed out of the middle of nowhere solely because of the, the isolation that you've seen there. And then lastly, trauma. Trauma is a major impact in this. We know that the ACE study showed us that they put you at risk. But we know that trauma, not only for post-traumatic stress disorder, which we know what that cause is, but also just for depression and anxiety can lead to these brain changes causing your, your illness. And trauma isn't just this terrible abuse that occurs or maybe the veteran who's seen really big. It's what you consider traumatic. I know people who have seen a lot of very traumatic things who don't identify that as traumatic where other people do and so that's very different so type 1 biological type 2 is genetic and type 3 is psychosocial fact reasons for causing mental illness the fourth one is nutrients and this is a, a really hot topic of mine and something that I have a lot of passion about we know that the foods that you consume have a major impact on your overall health we know that what we also know is that if you don't get the right nutrients, if you don't have the right stuff, 
not only is your body not going to be healthy, but however you're consuming your food may be having an adverse reaction to your body. So for nutrient-based mental illnesses, it can be due to food, so just overall amount. If I'm not eating enough every day, I'm going to feel lethargic and tired, and it can make me feel really depressed and down. Maybe I'm eating at the wrong time. So for example, people eat, people who eat very, very large meals may find themselves being lethargic. I know Andrew Huberman had uh, referenced a study in his podcast a couple weeks ago about once 80% of, 85% of your stomach is full, you can become tired. And so people may find themselves feeling tired all the time because they're engorging themselves. Consistency of food. So if you don't know where your food's going to come from, if you don't know what that food looks like, if you don't have good access to that food, kind of goes back to the psychosocial things too, but the food isn't there. We also know the type of food you're consuming is big. We, we're beginning to understand that highly processed, high sugars, fake, filler-based, what we don't, they don't even call food in other countries, we call it food here, have a major impact on mental illnesses. We're seeing dyes have a major impact in the world of autism from making these behavior disturbances occur. So it's not that auti- the, the child who has autism is having a behavior problem, it's that the food that they're consuming is making them have this behavior problem. So instead of using this medicine to calm them down, how about we begin to change that diet so that they begin to feel better and they can stay calmer? Same thing for kids and, and even adults with attention deficit disorder. Yes, there's a brain abnormality biologically, but maybe they're managing it if they could eat better food. You know, like fad diets can have a big impact on mental illnesses. You see people who start eating just specific foods over and over and over, and maybe their bodies are very insensitive to that food. We see people who like are consuming a lot of foods that have hormones in them and things, and the biological changes that are occurring in these people's bodies, whether it be the young girls who are going into puberty earlier, what does that look like for that girl? So it's not that this girl just randomly got anxious out of the nowhere. It's that the food that she's consuming has sent her into a place that her body wasn't ready for, and it can generate anxiety in that, ma- in that manner. So the types of food you're eating, the amount of food you're eating, and then also do you have intolerances? We see people who have a lot of intolerances to those like saturated carbohydrates, things like the white breads, things like the, the pastas and the, and the pizzas, and they'll come in and they're very, very anxious and they're feeling very overwhelmed. And so they remove that because remember, we have all those serotonin receptors in our gut. We do know serotonin is implicated in anxiety. And so you see where you're constantly hitting those receptors. If there's an insensitivity to it, you're going to feel really anxious and overwhelmed. You know, there was a big push in probably about 10 years ago on the concept of gluten. And you're seeing that today. And there are people who truly have gluten intolerances like celiac disease and then just sensitivities to it. But for a lot of people, and it's believed in other research, that it may just be the carbohydrate itself. So what if we remove some of those carbohydrates from our body and see what happened? And finally, in the world of nutrients, vitamins. Vitamins are imperative. And if we're eating these fake things that we believe are like food but aren't really food, and we're not getting the vitamins that we need, we know we can even do it. So for example, we give medicines primarily to modulate serotonin and norepinephrine in the world of mood. However, if you do not have adequate nutrients in your body, specifically certain nutrients for each one, the precursors of those chemicals that the medicine's even focusing on can't even be converted so it's even there. So if I'm trying to modulate serotonin and I don't even have enough serotonin in my body to be modulated, not that I need more serotonin, but it's not even there to work properly, how am I going to manage this? So a 
big, big implication is nutrients. So we have our biological types of mental illness. We have our genetic types of mental illness. We have our psychosocial types of mental illness. And then we have our nutrient-based types of mental illness. And those are our four that we've covered so far. The fifth one and the last one we're going to cover is your environment. This is something I've really been turned on to late that I, I don't think I really truly understood until I began to understand it through the through reading and kind of seeing it with my own eyes and in my clinical experiences. We know that certain environments can cause mental illness. We as humans have evolved to do certain things. And so if you find yourself in certain places, you may find yourself feeling very depressed. For example, nature is a big, big impact on mental health. We're, we're, there's people calling it like nature or nature deprivation syndrome, where you are just deprived of nature. Maybe you, you're in this concrete jungle, you're, you're not getting adequate sunlight, you're not getting to see trees and grass and wind, and you're just kind of stuck. For a lot of people, that can breathe or bridge into mental, mental health issues. Not for everybody, but for some people. Like, for example, my sister, she is able to be in cities and do really well there for a certain amount of time, whereas myself, I cannot. I'm just not really good at it. I've got to have grass. I've got to have the water. I've got to have that nature. So some people are more inclined to manage it than others. But if you have someone who's transplanted into another area or maybe even grew up in that area and they're not getting it and then all of a sudden they start feeling really depressed because they're sitting in their office all day rather than being outside, a really good chance and so instead of giving them a medicine to make them be able to sit in their office maybe they need to find a way to get more access to grass get more time outdoors we know that the sun is a major 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 impact on your mental health the amount of sun you get the time of sun that you're experiencing it are you getting sunlight on your skin the amount of people that we see even in the sunshine state of, of florida who don't get adequate sunlight it will, is amazing. And there's a lot of reasons why. For some people, they may have you know physical health issues where they, they get overheated and so it's really hard for them. But they'll shut it off rather than getting out early in the morning or late in the afternoon. Or maybe they're on other medicines that, that maybe they don't even need that would make them very sensitive to sunlight. And so they just avoid it rather than finding the ways to be able to get out in it. You see people who are on these vitamin D supplements to get it, whereas we know that vitamin D is more bioavailable through your skin than it is your gut. So you could get that vitamin D if you were to go get 30 minutes of sunshine every day rather than take a pill. So we see where if you're having these nutrient issues, like we said earlier, related to maybe vitamin D, go out and get your sunlight, now that depression and anxiety may go away and you may feel better. We know the environment of technology is really important. The amount of technology you're consuming, whether it's through video games or phone or computer, whatever that looks like, that amount, the type, the times a day you're looking at it, the amount of people who can't, you know, if you find yourself you can't sleep, when was the last time you looked at your phone? The people who are constantly consuming that light and then try to go to sleep, you may have that insomnia and you stop that, you get to feeling really well. And then, you know, that if your environment is really technology-driven, then you're consuming a lot of fake light. You're not getting outside. So the environment can lead to you having these experiences. And we also know that certain water, air, and soil have a major impact in your mental health. Um, there was a study conducted by Kumar in 2008 that was looking in China and found that the air pollution in China was leading to inflammation in the brain. We've seen where like act like certain concepts of water are better or worse for your mental health. 
We know that the soil that your food comes from, if it doesn't have those vitamins in it, is, has a big impact on your overall health. So you can have an environmental depression that if you were to either change that environment or begin to find ways to help yourself as you navigate that environment, you're going to feel better. It's not that you got to wake up tomorrow morning and quit your job if you're stuck in an office, but you've got to be way more diligent about getting that time out in the grass and going to the park or getting into some sunshine rather than just getting in your car, going to work and going home kind of thing. Or maybe you're, if you're working from home and you're kind of isolated, you got to get out. So five types, the biological types of mental illness, the genetic types of mental illness, the psychosocial types of mental illness, nutrient-based mental illness, and environment-based mental illness. And so how we would identify that in like a code, you know, if you're kind of going to use this within your your practice or understanding for people is you'd say you know it's a psychosocial depression or it's an environmental depression or it's a nutrient-based depression and so the intervention would identify where that comes from now you may say how do i figure this out like how do i know someone has biological depression or nutrient-based depression a lot of this comes from a very very in-depth discussion with the person whether it be your patient, whether it be a family member, and then accessing healthcare and seeing a provider that will check these things out for you. Pull some labs to see what your body's doing before putting you on a medicine. Looking at your gut and just seeing, hey, if you had any of these medicines in the past, it could have had an impact on you. Looking at your family history. Really assessing your overall psychosocial stressors in your life. Discussing the types of food that you eat and the way you eat it. Many times I think in healthcare, we're like, you know, are you eating three meals a day? Kind of just go over it that way. But what does that look like? Are you getting adequate food? Is that every day? Do you find that you're better or worse around certain types of food? Keeping a food journal. Looking at your environment. How much sunlight are you getting a day? Maybe you're in a place where you don't feel well. You feel like, you know what? I'm, I feel depressed. Looking at all five of these factors and being able to identify what, what could be going on in your life. Are I depressed now because I'm spending a lot of time indoors? Or maybe like life is very stressful or maybe I was taking a medicine or doing something that maybe impacted my gut or maybe I've been eating certain foods. Figure it out. Look at it. Talk to people about it. Create this environment in your life where you can really assess your overall mental health rather than just saying I'm depressed or I'm anxious or I'm on edge, or I'm angry, because it's so much more than that. Now, as I said earlier, there can be multifactored. So you can see someone who has a genetic predisposition, and then life stress triggers it, and there's a lot of things that are going on in that way. One thing I always say is that you start with the what you're putting in your body first, and then you move out. So if you believe it's multifactorial, or you believe there's more than one, start with your food, and start with your lifestyle and then move out from there. No matter what, rule out the biological causes. So for interventions, start with what you're eating, start with how you're living your life. For assessing, start with is there anything wrong with my biology? Is my thyroid good? Is my heart good? You know, have I got some kind of weird virus? What's my weight like? You know, have I been taking medicines? Kind of looking through those and then moving to those two things. But if you're in a place if I don't feel well, Assess your lifestyle and assess your diet. And I truly believe you'll begin to understand why you're sick. And then, once again, if you're in that place, reach out. Talk to it. Now, if you're in a place where you, you know, you're you even thinking about taking your own life, 
and you're, you're not well, I highly, highly recommend you seek out a therapist. That is a great thing to start with. Call the suicide hotline at 988. Do any of these things to reach out to get help first. But don't think by reaching out you are chained to a medicine for the rest of your life because once that early intervention occurs, you can begin to work through this. I'm able to do this for many people, and I've seen other people do this as well, that just because maybe in a short term you need a little bit of help, long term doesn't mean you're going to be on that if you do these other things and figure out where this illness is coming from. So five factors or five types, um, biological, genetic, psychosocial, nutrients, environment. Those are the types of mental illness that we experience. I believe in our culture. And I think there are things that are happening in our world today that are the reasons that we're seeing these elevations in illnesses across the board. So over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack each one. The first one, of course, will be biological. That'll be the next podcast. And then we're going to kind of wrap up with how, what this looks like in Western society, but also how this differentiates within other cultures. So stick with us. Follow along. I think this is going to be a really great concept to discuss. And as always, continue to challenge your thinking, continue to examine how these things impact your overall life and uh, constantly pursue that improved well-being.